This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, Esri and I continue our review of the 2002 Adam Curtis essay documentary series, The Century of the Self. On today's episode, we discuss part three. There is a policeman inside all our heads. He must be destroyed. This is kind of the episode why I wanted to talk about this. Like, this is the one where there is, like, the the main set of stuff. And in some ways, with this episode, the story kind of... This is kind of where the series really ends, like the overarching narrative. If I recall correctly, the next episode, it covers material that's more comprehensively covered in his series, The Trap. That's the one I've seen. I've seen The Trap. All this time, I thought, oh yeah, Century of the Self. I've seen this one. But I actually saw The Trap. I saw the one with uh, Game Theory and Fuck You Buddy and John Nash and all that. That's The Trap. Yeah, that's one that's like, whatever happened to like the dream of freedom and... But what's interesting about this one, I remember you said on an earlier episode that he's kind of, Adam Curtis is basically maybe a black-pilled spirit of 45-er. And you can see that in the preview to the next episode, where it seems like this whole thing is maybe an elaborate prelude to Wither Blairism. Yeah, this is all an attack on new labor, essentially. But really, it's like the most, uh, so you didn't have to go this far to explain why... (laughs) Why Blair sucks? Why why Blair be blaring? Like, yeah. I mean, thank you, <laughs> thank you for you know telling this entire story. But like, there, there's a much simpler explanation for why that guy is so shitty. <laughs> yeah, it was a way of doing it without. I guess in the same sense that like the advertisers at the end are like, don't look at like class or gender or any of these democratic demographic markers. You know, like, let's talk about personality. Let's talk about that sort of thing. It's a way of sort of psychologizing new labor, essentially, and, and talking about the forces that created the mindset of new labor. You know, maybe not dealing with the essential relations, but dealing with some of the agents, some of the causal factors, or at the very least, like, the analysis behind why people made this or that decision kind of downstream in the cultural and political realms. There's very little here, especially in this episode, that actually talks about economics other than a sort of perfunctory gesture towards, you know, being able to sell selfhood, creating a solution to the idea of a crisis of overproduction. Other than that, like this episode is probably the least economic so far. And like the least tied to big politics. There is a major exception with the new left. We'll get into that. And this episode clarifies what this story is really about. Like, what is he really trying to solve here? It's really about the left. And it's harder to get that. It's hard to, it's harder to see that with the previous two episodes. Maybe the first one a little bit more. But mm. the second one talks about the mass consumer culture of the 1950s. That even people in mass 
uh, mass entertainment at the time were talking about the serialization of mass consumer culture in the 1950s. Right. Right. There were there were artists like spoofing on like Billy Wilder was making movies about that. Uh, Everybody's making movies like people. People were very conscious of it even at the time. And so that's something that was much easier. And we'll see why in this episode. It was much easier for the system to respond to and metabolize. What happens in this episode is something that I think still haunts us and that we still don't have a clear answer for. Mm. Maybe unless you're a Marxist. (laughs) I don't think so. I think this, when I was watching this, I was like, okay, so this is a personal attack. I see. No, but, (laughs) you know, essentially, like, I think being a Marxist would be much better if it did solve this problem. But it doesn't really get you out of this. In fact, that's where a lot of the new left radicals went. And the experience of the weather underground and, you know, the yippie movement is still sort of the cultural pattern that we're in now, in a way. The only Adam Curtis I saw before Occupy was uh, The Power of Nightmares, his series on... Because I watched a bunch of, like, the sort of bush documentaries at the time and that was one of them and i hadn't seen this i had seen though my main knowledge of like the 60s came from this pbs miniseries documentary i watched on like the political activism of the 60s and the impression i got watching that because i watched it and i was kind of like taking the ride with with the boomers back then you know what i mean and the impression i got watching that was that it sort of became a party and like a party fundamentally and not a party as in like the good Lenin sense <laughs> a party is in just like you know getting fucked up and doing Woodstock party and that's fine but that's not sustainable you can't just do that forever it's yes, not like unlike a, uh, unlike a Leninist party just fully sustainable anyway <clears throat> continue okay let's just get into the episode and a lot happens in, in this one too so it starts out with a recap of the previous episode it then gets into this guy who is running I forget what his name was. You didn't write that down, did you? Um, um let's see. Well he's running that Orgone baby. It's Wilhelm no, no, Reich. This is before that. There's a guy before that who is doing this kind of therapy where basically people just kinda of act up and throw a tantrum. And I actually discovered some That stuff comes later, right? Because uh he's he's basically he has like a re- he has a like a teaser in the beginning where he just sort of states the thesis of the episode that expression, not repression, can make you even more vulnerable. It's a basic like Foucauldian sort of point. Right. And he has like the tantrum therapy going on in the background, but that stuff doesn't come in until later in the episode. The the first like kind of concrete narrative points in the episode are Talking about the rogue psychoanalysis, uh, excuse me, uh, psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich and the ascendance of his kind of crankery, even though the Freuds thought that they eliminated it. No, there's a guy, there is actually a guy before that who is one of, it actually starts with one of a guy who is following from him. And it starts with him like watching some lady in a gymnastic suit, like beat the shit out of a bed. Um, and he's just kind of like encouraging her to do it. Um, I just want to throw this out there real quick. I don't know if we'll keep this in the, the final episode, but um, there's a part where he's like t- beating a bed with like a tennis racket. 
right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do, I do remember that. The first, the first place I ever saw this was maybe in the greatest... Uh, okay, Dr. Alexander Lowen. That's who he was. Um, the first place I ever saw this was in a book I found at the, at the library uh, by a guy. It's the greatest book I ever found. I wish I'd stolen it because it's gone now. <laughs> but it's it's by like one of the foremost like um, ex-gay therapists, right? <laughs> it's the oh it's the, yes, it's the greatest book I ever encountered because like the cover is him like in the like with his wife in what looks like an extremely awkward Sears photograph, right? <laughs> And he talks about how like he cured himself of being gay, and he uh, his wife is also like this like older Asian lady too, which uh, like just to p- paint a picture for you. Anyway, inside the book, one of his like therapeutic methods is you put on you put on some uh, some like weightlifting or golfing gloves, something with a good grip, like some leather, right? Oh yeah. But, okay, some leather gloves. Leather Ready. gloves. You gra- you grab a tennis racket and a stack of pillows, and you beat you beat the pillows with the tennis racket, and on the downswing before you hit it, you scream out, "Dad!" <laughs> <laughs> Nothing gay and, about that. Yeah, and doing that over and over again apparently will well along the lines of this guy's method of therapy, uh, purge purge the uh, gay vibes out. Yeah, I wish they talked more about, first of all, homosexuality. Like, they touch on it a little in this episode and and in the episode prior. But, like, I also wish they talked more about that guy that they were just showing clips of. Because it was just sort of under, it was just sort of under the narrative. You know, like, showing, like, what I guess was, what I guess was a sort of, like, dissident practice in the 50s of like having someone you know, <laughs> smack a bunch of pillows with a tennis racket and yell dad <laughs> <laughs> but apparently i really thought that this is just some shit this guy was making up but apparently he got it from someone who was an actual doctor so <laughs> there you go but yeah um, there you go yeah then okay so from there i just wanted to i just wanted to mention that because again i wish i'd saved that book because uh it, it was wanna, great. It was, and it was full. I, it was full of stuff like that too. I want to know everything about this book. Oh my god. Anyway, okay. So then it does jump for, to Reich like immediately after that because that that's where this guy kind of this guy's lineage. And to show how fast paced this episode is, by seven minutes in, we already get into the orgone gun and UFOs. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they kind of. Very briefly summarize uh, Reich's kind of thought that, you know, unconscious forces are good. Repression makes you violent. You know, it's not like you don't just have this like violence within you, um, you know, basically d- denies what Freud would call like Thanatos, you know, like the de- the destruction instinct, the death drive. And it's all really just like libido. It's all really, I mean, that's like, that's his way of putting it, but in the Freudian, it's all just Eros, right? Like that yeah. inst- instinct is basically Eros. It's basically like a love drive. And when frustrated, it becomes death drive. Um, and that's a sort of Freudian way to say what Reich is, is putting out there. Yeah. Well, the thing that he crucially skips over with Reich is like Reich's Marxist phase. 
because it ah. like, like Reich wasn't just inverting Freud. Um, and I think some have argued that in many ways, like he and Freud were in line, and it's Freud that flipped around the time he wrote like Civilization and Its Discontents to yeah. argue that that repression comes from anxiety and not the other way around. Whereas before he was saying it was the other way, which is why he you know put Reich in such a prestigious position in the beginning, mm-hmm. and saw Reich's fixation on orgasms as just kind of like a hobby horse and like okay this is this guy's thing, but we can still work with him, you know? Right, because I understand Freud's like turn towards uh, a theory of like death drive to be something that he flirted with, kind of abandoned and then recovered in the mature Freud when positing the sort of like triad self with the id or something anyway the point is that like there's a reason that a lot of people just think of like sex and when they think of freud you know is because this like reichian reading wasn't out of line with like at least the middle period of freud's work right and reich was one of the first people to try and sort of unite marxism and psychoanalysis wouldn't be the last. Uh, very mixed history of trying to do that. In Reich's case, he was basically trying to, with like a sex pop project, to sexually treat proletarian workers. He discovered a very set, a different, very different set of problems among the working class as opposed to like the bourgeoisie that was the typical clientele of psychoanalysis. And a lot of it was almost like basic hygiene things or basic just you know like sex education that people needed. Um, we talked about this a lot in a previous episode, but I think the turn that happens in Reich would kind of be emblematic of a turn that would happen later in the leftists who were influenced by him, or in the broader left, you could say, that was influenced by him. Um, although Reich, it's not to say what happened with Reich, <laughs> because some of it almost seemed like it was just what happened to him personally, where he was, around the same time as both were taking conservative turns, expelled from both the world of psychoanalysis and from the communist left in Europe. And then mm. literally Europe itself. Um, right. There's all, you could also say that his, yeah, his fixation on like the orgasm literally turns into orgone energy and he begins developing like, these crank theories about it's like this naturalistic energy that's out there in the universe that can be collected and utilized for, you know, you're literally channeled by a gun and used to destroy clouds and other insane shit like that. <laughs> Yeah, that always seemed like the most ingenious grift. Because, like, the original theory of libido is, I think, maybe the common sense theory. It's a common sense, like, psychoanalytic theory. Like, man, that guy really needs to get laid, you know? Like, you know, when you see someone super wound up or or whatever, or you see someone that's super embittered, it's like, God, they just, they need love, you know? They need someone to, like, you know, touch them in a way they appreciate. Like, I think that's, like, a commonsensical way of looking at frustration um so like in a way it's specifically this like reichian libidinal theory that's out there in the ether um but orgone on the other hand is this weird metastasization of the concept where you can like you know capture it from the sun or build a box and accumulate your orgone Shoot it at the clouds to, you know, seed them for rain. Um, eventually, Reich is um, arrested for selling orgone accumulators that <laughs> claim to cure cancer. Yeah, yeah. He thought he thought Freud had cancer because of his character armor and the way he would clench his jaw. And that's what fucked mm. his jaw up. 
Yeah, um, right. It's also worth mentioning that although he's expelled by Anna Freud, a lot of his ideas about character armor would inform her school of ego psychology, which is oh, probably why they tolerated tolerated him for as long as they did. I mean, I think he lastly, I think he was just literally did kind of go a bit insane just from his experiences. And but I think part of it is because like the dream, the dream of the talking cure is you will through patient investigation and through this relationship of transference that happens between a patient and an analyst, uh, you'll find kind of the magic switch that you flip in somebody to cure their neuroses, right? That's the dream of therapy. And I don't think he ever really let go of that. And because of that, because if you take a Marxist analysis and you say that it's the, so it's the broader, like fucked up relations of society that are causing people to not only have like this fucked up neurotic complex, uh, but also be having like bad sex, you know, because right. that, that was a thing too. It wasn't just people right. need to get laid. They need to get laid the right way and have like yes. good orgasms, you know, not yes. just, you know, whatever it is they were doing in you know, not just, you society. know, two, two pump chomp, two, right. you know, no two pump chomps up in. Yeah. Um, but when he was doing his sex ball thing, he basically found that a lot of it was basically almost like clinical social work is what you find when you're, when you're basically treating people, you know, it's, you're, you're basically just running a free clinic almost at that point. Uh, because the problem is a broader social problem, and that really cannot be cured in the in a full and fundamental way without full communism, right? And so, if full communism isn't going to bring that, and if psychoanalysis isn't going to bring that, where do you turn? Well, maybe I can find this energy <laughs> in the physical world and develop a mechanistic solution that can rid it of you know rid us of the problem. Yeah, that is a really desperate turn. It does make some sense based like especially expanding that to the broader like leftist project but that's what happens when you're trying to when you're trying to cure everyone's problems well and that's what you see in the new left in the 20th century you have the woo turn yeah you know we're gonna let we're gonna levitate the fucking pentagon yeah it's Uh, a new left into the new age when i was living in berkeley california the continuity even 50 years later was very visible you have like the embittered quietist Marxist route, the Bordiga path, or you know mm. you try and like grind it out and doing you know labor work or whatever. Maybe you get maybe you do some good things there, but it's not you know it's not solving capitalism as a totality. Or you have you have the path of just accepting it and becoming like a, you know uh, just folding yourself into into the system as like the psychoanalysts did as they kind of were incorporated into capitalism. Right. Well, I, I think I think that breakdown is, is useful in the sense that, like, we have a choice, right? We could continue to, like, I don't know. We can try to grind it out on the structural level and, you know, keep pushing for the structural change that we all, as Marxists, think is important, right? And sort of devote our lives to that we can become more like clinical social workers and devote ourselves to, you know, doing palliative care on the symptoms of capitalist society that are inevitably going to pop up. Or you have some kind of turn inward, realizing that, all right, I mean, my goals have been kind of grandiose. Um, I need to work on myself. And the fun thing about the working on yourself is that if you carry yourself as continuing the mission 
of grand social change by working on yourself, you kind of can ruin it. Like, you kind of make... <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, like, if you don't just see yourself as the end goal and you see it as this, like, much broader, bigger project that, you know, working on myself is really about fixing everybody. You're, like, doing this amazing magic trick where you're an instrument. Working on yourself is just so that you could do things better. You don't really value yourself in an interesting way. And it's more like brushing your teeth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, elaborate. Well, brushing my teeth is good for me, but it's not going to... If we don't all just brush our teeth... To, maybe we can get into this more as the episode progresses, but if, sure, like, yeah. man, if, we, all, if we all just brush our teeth, then we're all going to have great teeth, and then we're all going to have a better society. You know, like, it's not... It's, it's something like taking care of your personal well-being right. and being a more effective person is necessary but insufficient. Um, and sometimes it's not even necessary depending on the circumstances. Like extremely fucked up people can accomplish amazing things no, no, um, no, in no, history. Of, co of course. And most of them crash and burn in tragic deaths, right? Like, it like those, those stories usually don't end well even if they are remembered. Like, and the question is who... What life do you want to live, right? Like, if you're the type of person that can't, like, brush their teeth if it isn't for other people, or if it isn't for the revolution, or if it isn't for, you know, I, if I don't brush my teeth, then I won't be able to, you know, help my patients with their sex lives, you know, like, just, well, you, you know, don't, what, brush what your you don't teeth do is you, to take care of yourself. Yeah, you don't turn brushing teeth into cope. Which is yeah. what they was what they did. But let's yes. let's uh let's let's try and I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but there's a reason. It's going to get fleshed out later on. We can just touch on here that Reich was in prison and his works were burned. Were ordered burned. I didn't I didn't realize that. Um, I, I'm taking this at face value. So Adam Curtis, you better not be lying to me. I mean, some of I mean, yeah, he did self-publish <clears throat> a lot of stuff, and we have that. Although it's hard to find. It's hard to find the original editions of his work because he modified it later to adjust to his later theories. Mm. Uh, but I know that I think I think there's a, an Italian Marxist who translated both his early stuff and his later stuff so that you can compare them. In, at least in Italian. I don't know if that was ever brought up or here. <laughs> so yeah, um, the the orgone less and the orgone full versions. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's I think I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read the Ogre and Full version of uh, the Mass Psychology of Fascism, which I have on my bookshelf. Oh man, yeah, um, the, the the George Lucas special edition with the CGI Orgone <laughs> of Mass Psychology of Fascism <laughs> must really be a, a, a qualitative step up from the original, which was just a bunch of critical theory. Yeah, yeah, Reich shot first with the Orgone gun. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's also right. a, there's a nice little scene uh, with uh, Reich's daughter. <laughs> Who looks just like him. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's so, like, like, blissed out. Yeah, blissed out and is like, I'm going to get revenge on Anna Freud. And has, like, a Freudian slip that she tells him to cut out, but, you know, Curtis leaves it in. Yeah. Um, Stalwart apparently, lad. Apparently the outward... This is maybe a sidebar, but, like, I should look this up. Was Anna Freud... She was a lesbian, right? She was living with that lady. She was supposed... Yeah, I mean, like, she was supposed to have been a lesbian, but... Things were very hush with gays in general at that time, but especially, you know, during McCarthyism, where, you know, it was on par with the Red Scare. 
these people were like enemies of the state, essentially. So you aren't going to talk about that um, if if you are even just doing business in the United States, uh, let alone whatever social mores there are. Um, yeah, because I know I know uh, Reich's daughter claimed that she, you know, was like a virgin and that her she was analyzed by her father when she was caught masturbating or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and because orgasm is the measure of health in Reich's theory, that's why Anna Freud didn't like it, which is like itself like a fabulously reductive psychoanalytic argument in the way that Freudians are often stereotyped for that. Ah, oh, yes, you must, you know, what you need is a good orgasm and then you will be fine with me and your movement, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of fun. That's, uh, it's fine. <clears throat> we got, a we, we got organ accumulation. All right. The theme of advertising versus personal authenticity. We enter Marcuse. So, yeah, it starts out with somebody basically saying, like, the consumer is king, right? Like, and it's like this old real video where it's very much just kind of laying out. And it's like, okay, this is where the whole Karen thing comes from. You have this guy literally talking about, you know, how the consuming subject is like the king of his realm. And wherever he goes, people, you know, supplicate themselves before him and, yeah, and cater to his every whim. The customer is always right. Yeah, it's it's very it's very dystopian. It's interesting just now that people are like maybe starting to talk about. I don't know if it's because of the internet or it's because you have a lot of people in like low paying service jobs that this has become such a, a thing that's discussed now, which is uh, certainly healthy. But uh, mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting how broadly and openly stated it was in the way that like good old fashioned '50s '60s era propaganda used to be. Yeah, before. This, you know, this sort of Karen phenomenon, it was pretty normal for me to hear middle class people bragging about how they stood up to service workers, you know, as if they were like being crucified by a waiter or something. Yeah, I wonder, I'd like to pull up data at some point of like what wages were in the service sector and if it's gone down over time, because I feel like I've seen that something I've seen I've heard from people where. Over time, it seems like this quality of service has declined, but it's, I'm willing to guess that's probably, you know, correlated to a reduction in pay and cost of, you know, quality of living overall. I would imagine so. Um, yeah, so there's that whole, like, consumer is king interlude. But the problem, like you alluded to, was that a lot for a lot of the, you know, a lot of the youth of that era, the boomers, it's like the, in many ways, um, the advertising... And the products of mass industry weren't individualistic enough. It wasn't expressive enough of each individual's person. And especially the way Curtis frames it, this is a lot of what fuels the counterculture. Yeah. There's a nice way in which it's like human vitalism and individuality versus mechanistic monotony. You know, there's something very comfortingly simple about that and you know marcuse is back at it he's uh the mentor of the anti mentor of the anti-war movement hugely influential you know you don't want to be reduced to the one-dimensional man by capitalist society you know um there's there's a janist aspect to marxism you know people are many-sided right like reality is many-sided you don't want to be one-dimensional you want to be multi-dimensional What's interesting about Marcuse, too, is kind of how well his critique holds up even after 
like the diversification of commodities produced and like this kind of hyper targeting that we'll talk about later in the episode. But anyway, yeah, I think we we did uh we did some Marcuse episodes also like uh and we touched on this in the recording we did with Derek on Sam Francis and his sort of critique of massified consumer society and how the jury's out to me on on how well this really captures it because it certainly doesn't capture the feeling. You know, you don't feel like you're up against massified, you know, single consumption society. There is all different flavors of it, even if they're coming in similar packages. A qualitatively different problem by the end of this episode, I think. Marcuse is back. Um, that's where he just kind of drops the phrase. Uh, this is a section where he basically introduces the title of the episode. Uh, There's a policeman inside all our heads. He must be destroyed. Then mm. talks a lot about the general waves of protest, 68 convention, eventually Kent State. And the main takeaway here is that the left at the time doesn't really have an answer to the overwhelming power of the state. That's how they see it. And I think in some ways this is the last episode ended with King making a really good point, but we also see the limitations of the way that white, mostly middle-class leftists tried to tried to implement tactics from the civil rights movement but i don't think they really fully understood the civil rights movement right like for a lot of the student protests like that was maybe the social base for their protest was the community around the university but king was operating out of the institution of the black church in the south um and so there there was what they were doing with like the marches and the boycotts was often one in directly tied to labor was also organized the boycotts were also organized much more like labor than what you kind of get post that which is these like vague calls to boycott whatever right where it's just uh this thing's bad boycott it um Mm. and i think that comes from a sort of atomization that you get from the birth of you know suburbia and post-war structure of like you know the american civilization or the americans like uh civic planning you know what i mean yeah so this kind of approaches its limits in these protests that come to a point where there's kind of an armed confrontation with the state and you have the weather underground blowing stuff up but that doesn't really seem to accomplish a whole lot and so the new left such as it was kind of hits a dead end yeah there's the what there's the, the weather underground uh what's covered here is the weather underground bombings the uh democratic national convention in 1968 in chicago where cops just really beat the shit out of the new left. Um, and then the Kent State shootings being like a sort of death knell. What's interesting, though, is how much this stuff is kind of commonplace now. <laughs> you know, like this sort mm-hmm. of like go out and fight the cops and beat the leftists is just normal. Like it doesn't even make the news anymore. Yeah, this like, I don't know, this shit happened in Portland like last night. What's interesting is that in the new left strongholds and like the pers- in the Pacific Northwest, like or where the legacy of the new left is still felt, this stuff happens all the time. There are the feeling that I got in Oakland whenever there was going to be like some kind of riot was not like, oh no, society is breaking down. It was more like, here we go again. <laughs> oh like, shit, here we go again. Oh shit, here we go again. Like this is 
a commonplace occurrence. Of course, it was very spectacular for me to witness, you know, people battling police in the streets. But out here, it was just like, well, I'll get my, you know, the shopkeepers are going to put down their, their riot shields up, and here it comes again. Like, there's a sort of chilling regularity to it, which speaks to a kind of cul-de-sac that even, you know, the post-anarcho, you know, insurrecto, communizer, like whatever qualified version of leftist or, you know, post-leftist, you know, insurrectionist you one wants to be, there's a wall that is not overcome. And that's something qualitatively different about what happened in uh, Ferguson and what happened in Michigan is like, it's not normal there. And that's why it had an impact. It's not, it wasn't normal from the population who was doing it. You know, black people aggrieved over murder in the streets. Like it means something else coming from that population than it does from the usual suspects in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. But the problem is it also hits that same wall. You know, it does. Whatever you could, like, you can't just say that, okay, yeah, Democrats out there pointing, basically trying to blame everything on white anarchists as agent provocateurs. That didn't help. But people weren't going to riot forever. People were going to go home eventually, you know. And so it hits that, it, now it hits that wall very quickly and just kind of disappears until it boils over again later. Um, so it's a similar problem. But yeah, it does have more force when you're activating um, sections of society that don't uh, do this on the regular. Um, okay. Yeah. So for the, yeah, no, I, I was I wasn't trying to you know just dismiss like people oh, know, for doing this. Like, uh, I, there was like a Ferguson solidarity riot um, in Oakland that brought out like more black youth than was at the you know Occupy Oakland stuff. And at the time, I was kind of like disengaged, but in retrospect, I see why it was different. Even though it's pretty much the same thing, hits the same limits. Um, even when it has more moral force because it's coming from a different population, we're still here. So what do you do? What do you do when, you know, you can't execute the goals that the Weather Underground girls are talking about? I thought it was interesting that they gave the most kind of like articulate expressions of communist thought to these Weather Underground girls, you know, like, you know, they want to overthrow the state. They want to overcome the market. You can, it's never stated what that is, but that that's communism. These are communists. Yeah. These people want to overcome that. I think it's interesting how much crypto Marxism there is in here. Like, I don't think the word is said once. Socialism is said once in a joke later by a yippie. But that's what's at work here. If you can't work for socialism, what do you do? Well, I think what the Weather Underground did was they um, they uh, befriended and raised up a uh, young organizer in Chicago uh, from Kenya who <laughs> later went into the White House to undermine America. All right. With um, the help of Herbert Marcuse. <laughs> yep, Herbert, yeah. Herbert Marcuse. Um, okay, so, yeah, right, the purposes yeah, okay. Of Cur- so the for the purposes of Curtis's narrative, uh, he basically talks about they turned inwards. And this is where he takes the title of the episode and, and turns it inside out. And he says, well, what they basically decided to do was, if we got this policeman in our heads, 
we gotta go inside our heads and get them out inception style yeah you know and, and then, so and then via the first law of dialectics if enough of us do this there'll be a emergent social change just from all of us being way cool it's he, he, uh, whoever, whoever's talking at the time is it Jerry Rubin who's talking at the time I forget who it is no it's but, it's a guy named uh, Stu Albert who oh no, is Stu, my favorite Stu Albert yeah yeah no no he was the good he's the good yippie that they, that they talked to yeah he's um, my favorite talking head maybe in this whole oh, thing a hundred percent I had to like double check to make sure that uh that wasn't at the Yippie Cafe in New York City on Bleecker Street. I used to run sound there. I met some of the most demoralized radicals I've ever seen in my life at the <laughs> Yippie Cafe. Uh, yeah, this dude, this dude in other pictures too. He kind of looks like the dude. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, holy shit! He's got like a sick like Hawaiian shirt too. By the way, um, true, true. I yeah, I could see myself being this kind of old person. You know. Um, but anyway, so he comes in as just like, yeah, this inward turn, like this got apolitical very, very quickly. Um, because yeah. people were attracted to this idea that it's like, yeah, you don't have to do activism. You can just change what's inside you. Um, and so C- Curtis is like, uh, you know, oh, so the personal becomes political. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. And he quotes the first law of dialectics to make this argument, essentially that like, you know, if, an, if enough of, if enough if enough people do this, then, you know, no activism required. You could just change society by everyone becoming way cool. And of course, he's deflating this because he's showing you how apolitical this gets and how in the seeds of the idea, there's there's a problem. In general, I, I kind of think that there is a wisdom to this internal turn. But what he isolates is like the key fallacy of it is that through dialectics, me being selfish is the revolution. Yeah. And he's cool too. There's this other guy they talk to. Who's like the, I don't know. I don't know if soy boy is the right term, <laughs> but you're talking but he's about a, Jer- Jerry Rubin. The No, no. There's the guy with like the beard and like the flannel shirt or whatever. Like the short haircut, the other one of the other talking heads, and he uh, but he very naively kind of talks about the, you know, he seemed to have, to a certain extent internalize the whole Gandhian like change yourself to change the world stuff, and I was just like, shut up, man, shut up. <laughs> is this <laughs> that was my Michael, reaction to that guy? Is, was it Michael Murphy, the founder of the Assailant Institute? Maybe I don't remember which one it was. Um, I don't remember either. But the, he's on um, right before he's on he's on right before Stu, you know. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I don't think I I might, might not have wrote that guy down. Yeah, anyway. exactly. He's not ma- he's not memorable. <clears throat> anyway, I just wanted to point out that that guy sucks, and uh, <laughs> I would rather party with Stu. Stu's not, cool. Yeah, <laughs> Disco Stu doesn't advertise. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, Assailant so, Institute. We have Fritz Perls as the guru. Michael Murphy's the founder. The idea is to find your unlimited power to yeah, defeat your social show, conditioning. And they show this footage of this in the, one of these sort of group sessions or whatever. <clears throat> where this guy is acting out like some fucking aspect of his personality or something. Oh, yeah, this and, demon. Yeah, like watching it, it's like watching some kind of like bizarre avant-garde theater or happening or something. But like watching it, like 
it's hard not to watch this and be turned off to therapy because I'm just sitting there like, dude, you're a, you're a grown ass man. You know, you are a grown ass man. What are you doing? What are you doing? Sit, sir, sit down. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop making a fool of yourself. Well, to be fair, this is the whole point of this like experimental group therapy, which has some weird elements, but I think looks better than what comes afterwards in the narrative. But like the weird element uh-huh. is the group therapy part where he's being asked to like channel this demon in front of a group. Or the and this channel weird, this aspect like, of the swami looking white, like swami looking old white dude. You know what I'm saying? He's got like his beard and he's sitting there. His <clears> arms look like twigs and he's just like, you know, like keep going, man. What, that, that's you Fritz Pearls, you... right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he's like just encouraging this like, I don't know, this guy that looks like a programmer basically to be like, you know, I'll destroy all of you, like in a really like kind of unconvincing like read for a bit part in silence of the lambs or something. And like me, you know, he's like trying to draw out this person's like sort of repressed power in a way that seems like utterly unconvincing and possibly like threatening to anyone watching. Yeah. So, but, and this kind of reminds me. So, we we I didn't it, it didn't make the cut but maybe it'll make the final cut I don't know I talked a little bit about my research into like Chogyam Trump Trumpa or whatever Trungpa yeah I talked a little to you about a little bit about that guy right Oh yeah um, yeah yeah So Curtis talks about how like thousands of people flocked to this and they started up centers all over the place and around the time there was a um, kind of parallel development there were all kinds of guys like this and Trungpa was one of them as well and so right. I. I was reading this book that was a memoir, um, half written by John Steinbeck's son, half written by his wife after he died. And they were deeply involved in Trungpa's Center in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and she was talking about like what the scene was like there. <clears throat> a lot of it was like ex-beat poets and people like that, you know, and a right. lot of it was kind of almost like summer camp for th- aging uh 30-something boomer hipsters right right um but what was interesting was what really brought them there for a lot of them there was this very same idea and it felt to them like they were recapturing kind of the salad days of the counterculture but in this more structured way that was aimed at like healing them in this internal way yeah the the human potential movement oh wait are you talking about the other guy well i'm saying this all kind of this idea of the human instrumentality pro I'm sorry, human potential movement. <laughs> uh, all Orange all goo, baby. Th- was something that was just kind of generally in the air. And, you know, there was there were a lot of guys like this in that period. Um, right. I will say compared to what comes next, e- even despite the their s- harebrained attempt to solve racism, the, the human potential movement seems positively benign compared to uh whatever the whatever the next like incarnation of this is yeah it's like okay you want to go do like your weird like theater thing or whatever like and i'm telling the people who came back from that were like the most obnoxious people at the barbecue though i yeah yeah for sure right because they were thinking that they're like defeating their social conditioning Right. right 
Like, that's the lie. It's kind of nice that this person wants to, or that this movement or whatever, wants to connect people to their internal power or whatever, to whatever, like, makes them tick. Like, I think there is, like, the seeds of a constructive idea here. But the group therapy element and also, like, the pretensions towards defeating social conditioning, but especially their attempt to solve racism. <laughs> oh, yeah, that rule. That, <laughs> that, that part was that amazing. That was amazing. Like, yeah, so basically they try and have these sessions where it's like, okay, we're going to get to the bottom of it, man. We're going to go and we're going we're gonna to figure out what this racism thing is all about through these interpersonal encounters. Oh, my God. And then so, so basically Showtime at the Apollo walks in. And just starts roasting everybody there, <laughs> like in the most like confrontational, just blowing up like the entire thing. And what Curtis yeah. concludes from this is that um, the black people and the black militants had their collective identity as black people. And they sense they they already sensed the trap in this process of trying to break people down into, um, you know, fully realized individuals robs them of the very communal identity that is the basis of what little power they have in America. And that's that's what is insidious about all of this. Because, again, by saying that you can basically... Again, it's that same dream that Reich had that you could... if you That, or that goes even back to psychoanalysis, that you can completely unlock the individual and they turn into this ideal regulator capable of walking the path of the Tao and the world and living like this fully fulfilled life or whatever. Um... It's a dangerous idea, and it's 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 just incorrect. Like it's not how like society works. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that the Reichian idea is to attack the regulator, right? Where the kind of Freudian, you know, establishment wanted to attack the id, attack like you know the the sort of like dumb urges, the animal kind of reflexes, because that sh- shit was evil. The, the Reichian mode of psychoanalysis wants to like more or less kill the cop in your head and like deflate the superego deflate all the things telling you no um and for a certain stage of militant you know they're all superego right like that's that's the whole thing and at this point in time there was still a black power movement there was still like headway that could be made or, you know, could at least be attempted by black radicals. So they didn't really like need people to come in and help them find their power. They had black power, you know, and this might've been the waning days of it or whatever, but that was a real movement at the time. They didn't need someone to come solve racism for them. They had their analysis. They understood a great deal of why, of what, of what their, you know, what their anger is based on. And, you know, they had a pretty rational picture of it. Like, okay, they might, you know, the, the one black militant who's yelling at the guy and saying that that's your skyscraper, that's your cop, like might be overstating the case, but the white guy fundamentally agrees in a way with that guy, but he's, and was, you know, sort of lying being like, that, that's your skyscraper too. But you know, you could vote like whatever, like, He's not really confronting uh, the black militants analysis. Like, right. I mean, I think if you try that, you know, try that same experiment, like 10 years later when, you know, black power has been like crushed from like uh, counterintelligence forces 
and you know that ex- you know like changelings like ex- exacerbate the you know dis- the self-destructive tendencies in the movement and it's like you know destroyed right like after that you know then maybe you can have this like well shit i need to like recover my my you know power and my circumstance but during the black power movement this is like that's a joke that's a joke and the militants see right through it problem is you have that encounter 10 years later it's like what is he doing in this neighborhood i need to call my realtor fuck (laughs) yeah basically that's that encounter 10 years later but um yeah i was gonna say just just touch on the reich thing again really quick like reich kind he makes this is the thing you see on the left it's in rousseau it's in kind of more bakuninist and anarchist thought this idea that there is this like noble savage inside of everybody that is just being held by by the man by the state by whatever and that if you just let that thing get out it's going to be fine and what i think the best of marxism has a more sophisticated understanding in that there's a dialectic between how the individual and society exists and that you can't just max you can't just max on one aspect and then expect the whole thing to be fixed like every things have to change like collectively <laughs> there has to be a collective overall change to really get at like the depths of the problems that we're talking about um and that's kind of that was again like an early germ of like the mistaken Reich and probably why he sees the removal the unleashing of the libido or whatever as yes i mean there are obviously deformed and warped um socially conditioned drives and instincts in people that emerge as a fact of existing in class society for sure like there is a lot of frustration but if you don't change the material base of society especially for with something that's you know as entangled into reproduction as sex uh you know if, if not literally at least in terms of the way that like households are developed and you know, that's like that shit's like the material base of society. If you don't change things like at a mass level, you're not going to you're not you're not going to have 100 percent good orgasms all the time, which I promise <laughs> you 100 percent communism will deliver. Yeah. Yeah. That's that that's the that's a Jake Verso promise. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, but with, with regards to this, like, I think also where Freud is coming from and critiquing this is not entirely just conservative, like. Freud, you know, really we're talking Darwin via Freud here, is that some of these instincts are not love instincts. They're not not all violence is repressed love or distorted love. Sometimes there are just violent instincts and they might come from a place of self-preservation or something down the line in the last instance. But who gives a fuck if the expression is very destructive right and Mm -hmm. just by uncorking the bottle you know what i mean like even if people weren't perverted by capitalist society and alienation or whatever not every instinct is going to be pretty not every instinct is a love instinct like and sure that's bong rip stuff about human nature marxists have no time for that i think it's probably worth saying that the pushback on, you know, everything is libido, everything is eros. The only reason why anyone does anything negative is just from a repress is just from repressed love. Um, if that were the case, you know, if you could prove that, that would be convenient for social constructivism and for, uh, you know, 
Reichian psychology and whatever. But it seems like that might not be the case. And hinging everything on that is maybe a bad bet. Maybe you can reconstruct this stuff without making every single impulse something that you want to indulge. Maybe you need a little superego. Like, you don't just... Like, I, I use the butthole metaphor for the Freudian self, right? And I frequently critique people that are, you know, the super, you know, like, dime-tight, like, authoritarian butthole. But there is the possibility of just being a loose butthole flapping in the breeze. It's, like, more or less incontinent and defenseless. Like, there is another extreme that you don't want to go to. And that's more or less the point being made throughout this whole thing. Is that a certain kind of compulsion to express becomes a sort of vulnerability. You know, it's it's one thing to not be a totally repressed, like, you know, millimeters wide butthole, but it's another thing to just be just totally incontinent and vulnerable. Like, you need the superego. You need some of it. You, you need some regulation. That's okay. So... Next thing they did was break up a convent. Oh man, I I love this story. This is this is a success. I see this as an unqualified success. Yeah, I'd actually seen this before. There's a series of uh, of Japanese movies that were made in like the 70s about this. So um, yeah, I feel like I already kind of know this story. Um, so they chose nuns this time instead of trying to solve racism. They're like, hey, why don't we you know see if nuns want to like be free and develop themselves. Yeah, so I guess in the end, most of the nuns left, but some became like this core set of like, they're going to be nuns, but lesbians at the same time. That fucking rules. Uh, so you're saying that you took a convent, you kind of asked them what they actually wanted to do. A bunch of them voted just to wear normal clothes. One nun got hit with the big dyke energy and started like knacking on the other nuns. And then the convent closed. A bunch of the nuns just wanted to be normal people. And the ones that remained were radical lesbians. This rules. I love this. What's wrong with that? I can imagine like some like bureaucrat in the Vatican being like, yeah, let's not do that again. Because <laughs> 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 they gave him permission to do this. Yeah, right. Um, but like this actually releases them from a kind of and this is something that comes up a lot, you know, when you're talking about like the the Freudian mode of repression and then this sort of like Foucauldian mode of like expression as being the dominant tools um, of manipulation. When you're dealing with like a feudal institution like the Catholic Church, um, and I guess I should say, you know, the, the, in the parlance of this, it's not Freudian, but, you know, Reichian or whatever, like, or Marcuse or, or whatever, this, like, libidinal view, right? Like, when you're dealing with, like, old school traditional institutions like the Catholic Church, approaching this, like, liberation of libido is actually very constructive. Like, it does actually help people get out of this cult and develop an authentic relationship to themselves. It encouraged a bunch of nuns to come out and, like, have good sex with each other. That rules. It only, you yeah, know, eventually... Yeah, it only eventually, like, stops being so useful when you are dealing with people 
that a have maybe like a militant mission for a good reason, like the black radicals or B when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with expression that has become a tool of manipulation, which is what the rest of the series, what the rest of the show is about. But this shows you like what the libidinal approach is good for. It's for nuns. If you're a nun, read Wilhelm Reich, get that orgone going. That's okay. I feel like a lot of Marxists think of themselves as the black radicals, but they're really the nuns and they do need to get laid. And like the whole society was telling them to get laid. So they don't want to hear that from me, but like, it's good for them. It's good for them to come out. It's good for them to uncover who they are underneath all the baggage and all the shame. Like, and it's good to like, you know, care about what you want and desire. Like, I feel like there's a certain kind of repressive mode and it happens much more in the periphery of American society than it does in the core. In the cities, it's more Foucauldian. But in the, you know, in the hinterlands of the United States, it is much more repressive. It is not like as much about, oh, we're manipulating you through expression. No, it's shut your mouth, faggot. Like, <laughs> you know, like, stop talking. You know, don't be yourself. Yeah. Like that stuff still exists. And there's a big core periphery split there. I want to push back on this and say that I think far left groups should actually be run more like convents and not less. <laughs> well, if what you mean is that the guru shouldn't fuck everybody, then or that they sh- or that they shouldn't be like fucking each other. <sighs> like I'm going. Yes. Yes. Ha- yes. Ha- having it's se- not bi- it's not I- big enough for that to be f- viable. Having seen what that actually looks like in practice, I will give you that. But I'll I'll say this. It's because most of them are in the core. Most of them aren't dealing with uh <laughs> most of them aren't dealing with the kind of repression you see on the f- periphery. Most of them are are like clout chasers that use their like expression in this like nexus of power and are like going to dangle their sexual relationships with each other over each other as clout. And like that's bad. And let it be said that not all not all like old religious institutions are like the convent. Some of them are more like the church where the father, you know, the the priest, the head priest is, you know, diddling kids on the side. And there is some, you know, letting loose of libidinal energies there. Just only for the guru. And a lot of leftist cults are run like that, where you have a lot of like sexless, frustrated, you know, Borg drones. And then you have the Borg queen who's like fucking it up, you know, in more ways than one. Usually a Borg king, but that's neither here nor there. But yeah, based on what I've seen from University of Santa Cruz uh, and the history of consciousness program there, maybe, yeah. Your mileage may vary. Yeah, so life insurance companies are worried that about declining sales. People aren't buying life insurance. Because they're living in the now, man. They don't need to plan for the future <laughs> on some Protestant ethic. Just all about right this moment. Now. Think about now, man. When I say 
I said I'm saying the word now, but when I said now, it's in the past now. You feel me? I they cut to this shot of like this guy riding a motorcycle, an intercut to look like he's driving by a shopping mall, and I'm like, yeah, this is the birth of this is the birth of like 21st century America. Yes. Basically, Curtis claims that there was a threat to mass production since, you know, you basically have extensive levels of fixed capital that are necessary to produce anything in a way that is profitable and that it isn't flexible and able to produce enough of a variety of goods, satisfy the needs of the increasingly diversified desires of the me generation. Mm. Uh, This is where we enter uh, Werner Erhard or Werner Erhard. Um, this guy, this is the S guy. Now this guy, this guy, I talked about how this guy is the next level. This guy is, has like, you know, uh, mad Rick Sanchez energy. Oh yeah. He makes the human potential movement look like, I don't know, look like a friendship society or something like, yeah, this guy, this guy basically Take, basically kind of carries out the deeper he what he basically pulls ideas from like existentialism and buddhism and weaponize c- combines them with like human potential movement techniques in order to create basically a program that produces yuppies yeah s i forget what that stands for EST. Um, uh yeah i forget what it is too diligent researchers we are but uh yeah est is like Honestly, this is this carries through the mission of MK Ultra. Like this guy actually has the stones to do it. Why? Because he's not asking people like the human potential movement to get back in power with to, excuse me, to get back in touch with their essential selves and to like uncover the power that they lost. No, this guy wants people to like go through group scream therapy to destroy the self and demonstrate that when you strip down the layers of the onion, there's nothing, there's emptiness and meaninglessness. And that the very fact of the emptiness and meaninglessness is also in fact empty and meaningless. He's very explicit about this. Yeah. That's literally what he says. This is like his phrasing is a much more extreme version of what they described in the purging of a, a human self in the MK Ultra experiments, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, but it was seminars that he got like thousands and thousands of people to sign up for all across the country. Oh yeah, and and with these weird contracts that said that you couldn't leave. Yeah, there's no safe word. It's a big crypto S and M thing designed to break down yourself, where there's no safe word. It's basically Fight Club shit. Yeah. You know? Like, and it's, yeah, this is basically, yeah, designed to basically strip people down, get them down to the zero point, and point to them that the, that the empty, yeah, the emptiness itself is banal and meaningless. And from that, you can just not give a fuck. But the thing is, in that emptiness, in that emptiness, like, you will probably pick up and inhabit the social role that you're existing within, <laughs> you know, no, it's no, basically no. an excuse. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. You just create a void. And, you know, what's the expression? Nature loves a vacuum. So it'll just let you be void and you could do whatever you want with it. Isn't, isn't that the expression? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and you see this a little bit with like the appeal of Buddhism to certain like Wall Street types, where it's like, hey, look, man, it's all a veil of illusion anyway. So you can just go like siphoning off value from like the rest of the planet and you know, right. use it to fund your coke parties and visits a little St. James, and none it doesn't really matter because none of it's real, you know. And there and there is there's no other like observing you, so you can do whatever you have permission to do whatever you want. Yeah, there's this like fundamental misreading of Buddhism that runs through Schopenhauer and through Nietzsche and like ends with Zizek talking about this parable from Zen Buddhism. And I think the way Zizek deals with Buddhism in general is kind of irresponsible and is totally like Western centric. But I do like the one thing he says about Zen Buddhism where, you know, there's like, there's this like warrior caste that makes use of the idea of the no self by being like, I didn't just kill somebody. People don't even have selves. Like, so it's <laughs> fine. Like, there is no self to kill. So I didn't really just commit murder. Like, <laughs> it's this, like, extraordinarily roundabout nihilism. Yeah, and this guy looks, you know, there's a picture of him. He has, like, a, like a fucking uh, turtleneck on and, like, a jacket. And he looks like some kind of, like, Brent Easton Ellison ca- character or whatever, you know. And this guy is, like, a, a Coen Brothers movie villain. He really is like he, you know, he I I feel like David Icke would probably have a feeling about this guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's got some lizard parentheses going on. Yeah. Um. So the poster boy for this was Jerry Rubin, uh, who is oh, Stu's buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Stu's buddy. Uh, part of the uh, Youth International Party, which. Uh, yeah. The yippies who had their flag was a black flag with a red star and a marijuana leaf. Right. Yeah. Actually, before we get to that, I want to say when I first watched this a long time ago, like this, this part really like disturbed me. But what, rewatching it, I kind of see his point a little bit more. I mean, obviously, what he's oh, yeah. doing is fucked up. <laughs> but, but the whole like human potential movement itself was already kind of banal, and so he, you know, in some ways, there's kind of an element of almost like auto critique to it where he's basically pushed the form to, like, its furthest possible extreme. Because you don't see this kind of thing as much anymore. Unless it shows up, like, in pop, pop-like culture, like in Fight Club, or maybe, like, Rick and Morty or something like right, that. Right, right. But there's something so much more insidious about this. The human potential movement was had some naive, naivete towards it, but essentially had a noble goal, of trying to have people connect with their deepest self their most authentic self and capture a sense of their own power that society had taken away from them something i actually endorse um what's going on here with with est it is like yeah with est is much more like the kind of brainwashing that you get in the bay area where people like well i read deleuze and he says that there's no self so i'm just i I'm going to treat myself as if I have no content, as if I have nothing underneath. Like, that's what really yeah. leaves people the most vulnerable. Like, uh, like, yeah. And it, well, it's, fu- it's fucked up because there is something like, positive that you can take from that observation. You know, like there is. Sure. Yeah, like what, what we think of the self is almost like this projection of like this collection of, you know, Dis- like discrete discontinuous like strings of consciousness you know yes and the fact that we try that you know we obsessively try to make that into something that is coherent 
let alone meaningful, is kind of absurd. And there is, you know, there is something I think useful in that observation. But his this process of his of just yeah, basically trying to empty people out in order to essentially rid them of any guilt or qualms about the society that they live in or anything really or what they've done or anything like that is yeah that is what's kind of like gross and uh disturbing about it yeah and it's, it's kind of sad to see like john denver like apparently was into this shit which is one oh, of the weird yeah. like non-sequenters of this yeah i was like what the fuck does this have to do with this gentle little hippie song and out comes this is the result it's john denver right like i don't know like i I have profound qualms with the whole way of viewing things. Although I have to say I've experienced, you know, things like this in a way of like, I think I've experienced the difference between the human potential movement and EST in thinking through different kinds of trans politics, right? You have a trans politics that focuses on recovery of an earlier self that society has suppressed. So, some people think of that as like essentialist, right? And sometimes it gets into some toxic forms of like bioessentialism or psychoessentialism or whatever. But I think that accurately reflects a lot of the experiences people have that they wanted to be somebody and society said no. They hit it and then they come out. They kind of, you know, they regain their power, they regain their connection to their self. And you do have to smash a narrative that you've been, you know, working obsessively to keep together in an absurd way but it the whole point is to re-narrativize in a constructive way right in the second mode like you can focus a lot more on the radical nothingness of the self right now that sounds like super liberatory what you usually get out of this is people that don't feel like that society's, you know, gender rules should apply to them. And now, when I was a kid, I certainly felt the same way. And as I grew up, I realized that that's sort of a, that's a big power fantasy, like to sort of believe that the primate rules that apply to everybody mixed with the Western cultural mores that are like stamped into this society. Everyone's just going to make an exception for me. No one's going to see me that way. Because I don't feel that way. You know, like, unfortunately, that is, that is sadly mistaken. Like, and I, of course, support people that want to, like, express their gender in whatever ways. But those people, and I know this because I was one of those people, you know, like, very frequently go through this, like, extraordinarily painful process when trying to talk to others that aren't on exactly the same wavelength as them. Like... Whereas, you know, since transitioning, like, to, you know, since presenting myself as a woman instead of as a radical unrolling ball of negation, I've had a much easier time being understood, if you catch my drift. It's this, like, re-narrativizing that enables you to actually kind of connect to yourself and live. This, like, acid to burn away everything and that, you know, you're nothing and you've never been anything and the whole concept of a self is stupid. So, like, just accept things as they are. I don't really see what that really has to do with self-creation. It seems more like creating a void to be filled by others. And that's kind of what you get, especially with Jerry Rubin. Like, 
obviously his guilt and his like difficulties or whatever from being a yippie and from that not working out from being part of this youth international party. Uh, they used to say a yippie is a hippie that's been beaten by the cops. Um, you know, like he gets the commie brainwashed out of him by this guy. And, you know, I don't know who the hell John Denver was before this, but I bet he would have wrote real bitchin' songs that had something else to them than the sort of gentle nothingness that the show gives you afterwards. Jerry Rubin's like the poster boy for this. He basically talks about how he had like a martyr complex or whatever, this idea of, uh, you know, like trying to sacrifice for something and that now he's basically more like callous to injustice basically uh it's i find that so disturbing because when he was talking about the martyr complex i mean i think that's very real you know that's a very real problem and the fact that his solution to this was to turn to est's like invent yourself egoism is your highest duty and to become not like how do i say this not like at peace with the presence of injustice, you know, but like you have to live in the world and you have to be there with injustice. If you don't want to be like a mess every day, you have to on some level accept that you can't control everything, even if you find it unjust, but to be callous towards it, that seems to be an element of burnout. There's a kind of callousness towards injustice that you can't get without having cared deeply at one point. A lot of people who have never had political commitments, they either lie to themselves about or can sort of like acknowledge that there's something awful in the world, but are sort of at peace with their own impotence, right? And I think that's what I was trying to say before, is that they realize they can't control everything. But what Jerry Rubin is articulating is so much more insidious. Well, the martyr complex and the indifference are two sides of the same coin. Yes, right? exactly. Like I don't, I, he wasn't recentered in the cell because, like, unless you're okay. So to become a martyr, right? You do some sort of often violent act that others recognize as something greater than the sum of its parts and inspires them, right? Right. So there's there's an element of social recognition that makes a martyred act meaningful, like. For, except for maybe a handful of like crust punks in Oregon, um, Ted, what Ted Kaczynski did was not a martyred thing. It just it happened and everybody just kind of moved on. He wasn't like a folk hero that like inspired a broader wave of thing things. No. Whereas John Brown was a martyr, right? Well, th there's a good reason for this. John Brown died. John Brown put himself right. on the line. Ted Kaczynski put other people's lives and bodies on the line. He put Noam Chomsky's right. body on the line. He put the CEO of Oracle's body on the line. You know, there's a very big difference. Maybe that's not the best <clears throat> example, but you see what I'm saying no, here. I, so, I think it is kind of a good example. It's a difference between like a, a militant willing to enact violence on others for the cause versus someone willing to sacrifice themselves for the cause, for something recognized. I don't know. Maybe that's not what you're getting at. Right. But I think there's a useful difference there. My point is, unless you go and do it, it's just a narcissistic fantasy. And so the transmutation of that to, like, yuppie Wall Street piece of shit isn't as big of a transition because in both cases, it's all about you, really. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Now that is what connects the martyr. The the Wall Street jerk off is the inverse of the martyr that he was. Or the no the wanna the wannabe martyr is what I'm saying. Like the wannabe. Yeah. No. 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 You're you're quite right because this guy didn't sacrifice himself for the movement. He got you know hit by a car in New York City crossing the street as some coked out stockbroker. Right. Right. But he yeah. He, but he told himself he would because that's what he liked to think about himself. Right. So Albert, uh, yeah. So Stu Albert basically described he. I love he this. Yeah, maybe one of the best lines. Well, this yeah, rules. He calls it basically socialism in one person. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking rules. And then uh, Curtis tries to ask him a question. And then he he continues his thought, and he's like, "Well, of course, that's capitalism." Yeah. <laughs> right. And and yeah, us. that's um. And and Stu Stu Albert, I think. Um, yeah, because like Stu Albert is like really perceptive is that it's this like overinflated, grandiose sense of self mission that makes socialism in one person what it is. Yes, because I've sometimes and this is, you know, part of why we're doing this, I've sort of advocated for people to reconnect with themselves in a way that is maybe has, you know, bits of the, the human potential movement in it, right? To kind of like make contact with their libido in a way that, you know, has some resonances with Wilhelm Reich and Marcuse, right? But what you don't want to do is make that mission only because, you know, make it an inversion of your martyr complex. That's what you don't want to do. You, you don't want your life to just be a, the world historical mission in one person. That's a totalizing fairy tale. There's something like Jerry Rubin is the mirror universe version of the like wellness communist that I think we need to be in order to make it through the world, you know, as moral Marxist agents that don't produce more burnout and pro-capitalist sentiment than we fight. <laughs> the uh, SRI is basically trying to quantify all this. Yeah, the San Stanford Research Institute. So Stanford, ni nice progressive, uh, you know, West Coast Ivy League kind of school. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff coming out of Stanford. What are they doing this week, Jake? Uh, so apparently they're they're trying to develop this palette of personality types they can use to better understand the like needs and desires of the American population at this point in history. This is where you get Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, at, at the very top of this pyramid is the phrase uh, self actualization, uh, which you know in this context is made. Yeah, it's, it's something that's so common currency. I forgot that it even came from this. Yeah, I didn't realize this came from SRI, but yeah, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs was in all of my, like, you know, sociology classes. And I think is, you know, a relatively good description of people have survival needs, people have thrive needs. And then, you know, a certain kind of person has enough of these met where they can do something really special that makes them feel really satisfied, right? Like... That seems good so far. 
Then you distill this into questionnaires, and that's where things get interesting. Yeah, so they develop these questionnaires, kind of ask, trying to determine what's going on with these people. And what they find is when they send them out is that people really love filling these things out because it's forcing them to ask a bunch of questions that they'd never thought to ask before. Um, and so they get a bunch of these things back. The return ratio on them is great. They don't have to send out that many in order to get a return. Um, and then if they eventually develop this whole palette of like different personality types. I think the main one they talk about is like the inner, what they call the inner directeds, which are kind of determined, I guess, by self choice. Let's see, but they're actually defined by like predictable patterns that like computers can analyze. Yeah, this is sort of the genius, right? Like that they do find a category of people that it appears, at least according to the Maslow's like theory, that they must have all of their like survive and thrive needs met, and they're hitting this higher watermark. <clears throat> And they feel like they're living their best lives. But their best lives can be categorized into 12 categories. Yeah, and this is where the term lifestyles comes from. There's kind of different archetypes of, like, values and lifestyles. I gotta catch them all. I didn't know. They didn't even list them all. I think one of them was, like, IMEs. Yeah. Uh, experientials. It's just, which, I guess, is just a bunch of people working out uh, and kayaking. <laughs> that's, what, that's the impression you get from the footage. Then you get uh, the societally conscious, which is... Uh, embodied by another person who is just like, I don't know, like another like leftist bugman who's like walking through like a bookstore that he owns, and he's like, I'm a business owner, uh, but this I don't believe in capitalism. Yeah, this right, is just right. what I'm doing right now. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's it's cringe, folks. It's cringe, and this does I can definitely see from this uh, where. Zizek was definitely useful in like terms of like his maybe interventions as a public intellectual and like reminding people like uh, you don't actually have to, it doesn't really matter whether you believe in capitalism or not uh, in order for it to work. Whether this is a useful thing or not, it's probably it reminds me of Myers-Briggs where the Myers-Briggs system, which is like and you know, a quantification of Jungian archetypes, right? <clears throat> Mm -hmm. Is it true? Are people really just inherently introverted or extroverted? I don't know. Fuck off. I don't believe in made-up nonsense. Right. So true. On the other hand... Uh, yeah. S with, a, S with an apostrophe to, towards S with a... That's a dollar sign? Yeah, so true. Right. Well, I feel like in that meme, it would be like, oh, I don't believe in astrology. That's made-up nonsense. Myers-Briggs? So true. Like... But the thing that yeah. this is useful for is, like, managerial classification of people. Like, when you're doing job interviews, people take, like, a lot of, like, especially like Silicon Valley types, will take, like, Myers-Briggs classifications very seriously. And if you're doing advertising, it doesn't matter if your rationalistic schema is a bunch of, like, jerry-rigged kind of bullshit that's self-flattering. It's like machine learning. You might not actually have a cognitive grasp of the essential dynamics, but maybe you landed on something close enough for it to be useful. Right. The key, the key move here is that they're trying to understand values and not mm. just actions. Right. And because if you understand the values, you can get some sense of where people are going to go. And not just demographics, right. Like not just essentializing the demographic. What, you, what you're doing here is, you know, you're looking for people that are more similar between different demographic groups. Like, you could have uh, 
and I am me or an experiential in all different kinds of groups. Now, of course, the study points to that you're going to get less experientials in, you know, the like lumpen proletariat or something than in, you know, the petty bourgeoisie with, you know, tons of rent money or something. But, you know, the, the point is, is that you're no longer looking at demographic factors. This is the realm of post-material classification. Right. And what really interests Curtis about this is how it applies to re- the, phenomen- uh, the phenomenon of Reagan Thatcher. And the basic claim is that the interdirectives were uh, appealed, found their rhetoric in both cases extremely appealing. Even if, even if everyone else thought this was like insane right-wing nonsense that would never play with a wider audience. Precisely because it wasn't cor- – like the interdirectives weren't correlated to social class, but they were attracted to it nonetheless. And that seemed to make the difference in the different elections. And so what you get here at the end is the closure of another loop. Um where you basically we've gone from uh, the New Deal to the new economy. America, following stagflation and at the beginning of deindustrialization, is facing like a new crisis. And Reagan famously comes out and says that somehow it's actually the government that is the problem of this. Right? This is like the final re- reversal of the sort of the New Deal of of of, uh, of Roosevelt. And now it's a state where it's like the government actually isn't going to do anything and we're just going to uh, kind of let the market take care of it and just try and monetize and commodify everything. And that will maybe by increasing the uh, velocity of the circulation of capital and like the amount of capital accumulated, that, that will make up the difference and allow the economy to sort of float right. on. They don't say that explicitly, but that's right. the idea. And this is an ideology. Um, this is ideologized because, of course, the state has to like set up these markets but that's you know not part of reagan's ideology but the atomized broken down working class and left of this period doesn't really have an answer to this like this just kind of steamrolls over everything and now we're in hyper real reagan country baby and this times exactly with the computer revolution which is able to resolve the problem for industrial capital and that you can do smaller runs through engineering and through the use of computers, you can do smaller runs in terms of developing commodities, which diversifies the array of commodities that you can offer. And now that you have people broken down into these typologies, you can figure out who wants to buy what. I I, got to say, like, I don't feel like the laughter, even liberals have really learned from this. Like the way that the smug, like SRI, like researcher was like, yeah, I mean, everybody thought we were like nuts for thinking that these inner directeds who are so socially conscious would vote for Republicans and conservatives. But guess what? We were right. They all think in terms of demographics. These are the people that are able to make sense of a world where demographic groups like, you know, your income bracket or your race or your gender ceases to be like as much of a meaningful identity marker. The way that these groups differentiate from within, let's say you're, you know, a woman that doesn't think of yourself as a woman first in a way you think of yourself as other things, you know, and inter you're a woman inter alia among, you know, like there's other things that are important about you, which again, if that's how you feel and you're not constantly being reminded that that's probably because there's some kind of improvement (laughs) in the situation of women that you're not constantly being reminded of your role. So you have this way of looking at things that politically 
Like, I'm not sure exactly where Curtis is saying that. Like, Curtis doesn't spend that much time on how this is applied, right? Just talks to some of the SRI researchers and insinuates that this is why Reagan was able to win over these yuppies. Yeah, more or but less. But I, I think there is something important here is that, like, values and, like, attitudes sometimes have more to do with how people vote than the way that, like, the Democrats look at things. The Democrats are like, don't worry. They just, like, invert, like, a right-wing trope, basically, where it's like, well, you know, there's going to be majority-minority soon, and once there's enough brown people, we'll just always have Democrats in office. Like, they don't really read the writing on the wall that, like, people have brains. You know, they're just so structuralist about it. And feel like these, like, demographic factors just make people agents of structure, excuse me, they just make individuals bearers of structure and they will obey their identity categories. The left still can't order. The left still can't organize around this. Liberals still can't think outside of these boxes. They're somewhat committed to it. Well, I would say there's more motivated reasoning on the liberals part because sort of like in these typologies, the proles are mostly left out. The interdirecteds on average by their own description don't come from the working class. Right. So this is a sort of coded class, like, typology. You're talking about a, 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 a situation where, like, neither party is really offering the working class anything. And the working class's organizations have, and political culture, have been broken down to nothing. So they don't really have any meaningful agency, you know, in the system. There's a, and there's also still a mass of people who also don't vote. Right. <laughs> right? And, yeah, the, 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 Democrat, the demographic stuff of the Democrats... I see it almost more in this idea that we have to figure out how to, like, win over the suburbs. And that's what so much of it is. It's like we're basically trying to win over, like, different factions of the middle class, essentially. And then anyone behind them will follow in tow. I actually kind of que- – actually do ca- I'm kind of skeptical of Adam Curtis's conclusion here. Like, if the inner directives are that small a portion of the population. Yeah, how do they carry an election? I, I don't know if, like, the electoral math on that actually adds up. Well- Right. But I kind of get the bro- I get the I get the broader point that he's trying to make here. Well, think of the pain here, especially when we're talking about the defeat of the Labor Party and workers. That's, yeah, that's really what he's workers addressing. Workers voting for Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives and the Tories. The generational pain there, the damage done to class identity and class loyalty there, has essentially not been undone. And so appealing to the psychological explanation, and I have to say, as like troublesome and dumb as this typology is, like it does have ways of like accounting for psychological phenomena in different income brackets that is more sophisticated than the way the left looks at people. It's way more sophisticated. It's looking at people's responses to their situation and how they cope how they psychologically manage it as, you know, being the relevant characteristic for categorizing their political behavior. That's smart. This isn't the final word on it, but people should think about that more than just think, well, it's, you know, big man swinging hammer versus fat man with a monocle and a top hat. Like, Right, or like this is like, you know, petty bourgeois or that's petty bourgeois. It's like, well, it is, but... Yeah, but like what kind? What kind of petty bourgeois is it? Why? Right. Why does that matter? How does that tell you about how they're going to act? 
you know? What's their psychological, like, motivations here? How do they represent themselves to themselves? How do they represent their own interests to themselves? Or what do they think about the interests that they perceive? There's a whole layer here that essentially there's a sea change in the way that political research is done and in how focus groups are done. And capitalism and its, you know, marketing arm that goes into public relations and manufacturing of consent is way ahead of the enemies of capitalism. Way the fuck ahead. Disturbingly like outwitting us. And Stu Albert is given more or less, not the final word, but kind of like, you know, Marilyn Monroe's squeeze in the last one, like gives the sort of the parable, the lesson for today. Capitalism figured out how to sell a product that sells you a way of being. It sells you values. It sells you like something that helps you be more you. Yeah, you don't you don't have to you don't have to make an identity. You can buy one pre-constructed. You can buy a prefab identity. Well, you, know? you could buy a, like there's an element of that, and I feel like of course Stu Albert is coming from that angle and that oh this is phony, this is a bunch of bullshit, this is fake. Where I kind of come down on this is I think like people do things with these typecast characters. I don't know, like, in D&D, you have, like, your alignment sheet or whatever, and you have the neutral good or the lawful evil or whatever, and then people build a whole character off of that, right? Like, people do something with the character select screen. They customize from there, and that might seem empty to us, but, like, capitalism can sell you some really incredible things. Like, I can't help but think of the role that, you know, hormone replacement therapy has in, like, trans people's lives and how often critiques of neoliberalism as a sort of sell-me-a-self will critique the way that gender is sold in a way that is, if not outright transphobic, easily kind of dovetails with a transphobic critique of, oh, you only... Oh, you think you could just buy a gender? You think you can just, like, you know, adopt it from all these cultural symbols? In reality, capitalism's uprooting of, you know, authenticity and identity has a very progressive side there. And maybe that's not the dominant thing that one thinks of, especially when we're talking about, like, subjugated, like, people of color, colonized people, like, indigenous people. You know, there's there's a lot more, like offensive and upsetting things there. But then there is this other side of it that is, you know, Stu Albert is like, hey, look, they figured out how to sell things to people like me. Things that would make me feel more like myself. And I think there's a wisdom in accepting that capitalism can do that. There are things that would make you a better version of yourself that are just sort of part of the wealth of a society and capitalism can dangle it over your head because they have all the goods. They have the, the technology that can make all the cool shit. Some of that is cool shit that you really want. Like, I don't know. It's a rabbit hole. It can dovetail with some consumer ideology. But I think some of that's true. And I think 
accepting that some of that is true means that focusing on yourself and self-expression cannot really be a strike against the system. Sometimes it really is just trying to make yourself a bit more comfortable with living in the world and that there's something okay about that, even if it's not the revolution. Like, don't delude yourself into thinking that you're socialism in one person. That's the mirror universe way of doing this. But, you know, engage with your needs in a way that it accepts the world as it is for the sake of you're an individual that has to navigate it. And if you have greater goals to wanting to change the world, once you get to the person that you want to be, you will be more equipped. You'll have more energy. You'll have more reserves to draw on to, you know, do things. And you'll have more, you know, if you want to be somebody that's like skilled, you'll have more skills to help. There is like a version of what's arrived at here that I think is a sophisticated response that the left has not yet grappled with. And in a way that I find disturbing, in a way that I find challenging. Like, I want to defeat what defeated Jerry Rubin. Right. But at a high, but that's actually, like, in terms of, like, having an authentic identity or whatever, I don't think that that's, like, the most, like, insidious aspect of it. The problematic aspect of, like, consumerism goes back to, like, a deeper level of uh, replacing everything or it basically manipulating in a pre-digital world more like in an analog way through the consumption of commodities, but in a post-digital world, literally hacking your brain chemistry and trying to produce endorphins through positive reinforcement and like consumption of commodities or through the way like an app is designed where it's literally like, yeah, like rewiring your brain chemistry to be on like, like what desire these yeah, dopamine you're, hits. You're right? trying to maximize engagement. So yes, of course there's an insidious side to this. And it's an insidious side that is in, like, think, full view of everybody. Yeah. I mean, I guess we talked a little bit more. That actually operates at a more broader level of abstraction that we talked a little bit about on the first episode. So I won't I won't reopen that can of worms. But that would be kind of maybe maybe my caveat to that whole uh, spiel you just went on For there. For sure. You know what I'm, saying? I, I'm, I'm responding to Curtis in a way because I want to win, damn it. I want there to be a way out of his suffocating black pill, you know, depressed 45 or nightmare. And the only way that I can see yeah. a way out is to turn inward in a way that isn't as delusional. The episode ends. Overproduction is defeated. Uh, there's an infinite, like, infinite panop an infinite spread of different commodities that you can sell to people. So the prices, the, for now at least, the price of overproduction has been, <laughs> right, has been crushed. Yeah. yeah, that'll last. And you get, you get the impression watching this that uh, the episode seems to suggest that there might have been some actual maybe liberatory potential to this human potential stuff. But it was all, and the boomers, you know, through their kind of we kind of sneer at it now because it didn't work, but through their like attempt at revolt, uh, they almost they almost got out. They almost like did it, but they were routed by capital, in part because they didn't really fully cognizant weren't fully cognizant of what they were up against. Right. And then it ends with the preview of the next episode, where we see what he's kind of getting on 
about with a Slack section where a lot of this is almost, yeah, like a very long-winded way of asking wither Blairism. Right, where left politicians um, pick up on the techniques of right-wing politicians and big business and thereby undermine themselves and undermine their goals, their reason for being. And that's it for this time. If you uh, want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe to our Patreon. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.